0: Okay, well, I want us to have a look at 2 Corinthians 5, reading from uh, verse 14 to the end, because we're here to focus ourselves upon the the cross of Christ and what that means for us. That on a hill outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, on a day in April, on a Friday afternoon, he really died for you and me. And that is what we're going to reflect upon, and that is quite clearly brought before us very powerfully here in what Paul has to say. And from 2 Corinthians 5.14 to the end, that is 21, you could argue that this is written in a very poetic kind of way. It almost seems that it's a kind of a hymn. That is particularly clear in the Greek from verse 18 to, to the end, which is 18 to 21, is really written as a um, uh, as verse. Um, it's not prose. That it is not just uh, as it might be just before us, as we're reading here, um, a text on, on, on in in a chapter, but this is really some kind of. Uh, a poetic arrangement. And so the suggestion has been made that this may have been uh, some kind of early Christian hymn, perhaps written by Paul. Um, It could have been intended as a a statement that was read out at baptisms in the first century, because there's a lot of talk about being in Christ, which is by baptism into Christ, or it's a fragment from an early breaking of bread meeting. Be that as that may, I noticed that Nearly all the major sections in Paul's writings that talk about the cross of Christ, and Philippians 2 would uh, be the classic one, have this same feature to them, that they are written very, very poetically. And uh, it does encourage the idea that... Um, the largely illiterate churches to which these letters were being written, were being encouraged to memorize these words. So as we read from 14 to 21, who knows how many faithful brothers and sisters, illiterate ones in the, in the first century, memorized these words off by heart, maybe sung them, quoted them to themselves in difficult situations, in their slavery, in their persecution, in their poverty, in their imprisonments uh, of, of various sorts, and took inspiration from them and so we now in our days so far away from them in one sense and yet so close because in essence no temptation has taken us that is not common to uh, in its essence to to all of the body of Christ over history so then 14 the love of Christ constrains us now if you look up the phrase the love of Christ uh, or the idea of Christ and his love throughout the New Testament you'll find that nearly every time it refers to his death on the cross it has that specific reference and of course here in the context that makes sense the love of Christ his death for us on the cross uh, constrains us because if one died for all then we're all dead and he died for all uh, so that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him so the love of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, constrains us. And what does that, what does that mean? Well, uh, Marvin Vincent says that the, the, word, the Greek word translated constrained, uh, really it doesn't mean to, to force, um, but rather it talks about shutting us up to one line or, or purpose, uh, as in a narrow, walled kind of road. It, it binds us. In other words, we cannot really reflect seriously on this fact that he died for me there and be unconstrained by it and be indifferent, be passive to it. We cannot be like that. Interestingly, the very same word occurs in Luke 22, verse 63. We're talking in the context of the uh, the suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus. It says that they bound, they tied up the Lord Jesus. And that's the same word translated here, constrained. It's as if, in his being tied up, tied up uh, as he was led out to, uh, to, 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 to the cross, uh, tied, or nailed, tied initially uh, onto the cross. That is what should happen to us. That we likewise are bound. We are constrained. <clears throat> and there we are with a very wayward kind of way of being uh, in us, unfortunately, and we uh, we wander terribly. And this is the whole purpose of our breaking of bread. This is the whole purpose of focusing for half an hour or an hour every, every week upon Him. And it shouldn't just be once a week, but really daily. That the cross of Christ, the fact that He died for me, should be really our inspiration. And I want to suggest that maybe our community has been uh, Bible-centered, Kingdom-centered, which is all well and good in one sense, uh, more than Christ-centered. And I would suggest that the kingdom ahead of us uh, is a carrot. It certainly is a wonderful carrot. But because of our spiritual dysfunction, it's not enough uh, in in some ways to keep somebody motivated. We know that it's ahead, and yet we still get terribly depressed, very weak, very uh, demotivated. And yet the fact that a person, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, died for me, now, th- this opens up the whole field of personal relationship and personal obligation to a person. That is rather different. <clears throat> That's rather different to us considering that, sort of in a simplistic way, I must be good and uh, then I will get into the kingdom. It's, if you see what I'm saying, it's kind of uh, a totally different um, way of approach. He died for me and I must respond to him as a person we are constrained and so he says that uh, in verse 14 because we thus judge that if one died for all then we're all dead and that he died for all but they which live should not henceforth live under themselves but under him which died for them and rose again so you can understand why I suggested that maybe this was read at baptisms because it has a strange relevance to baptism that His death was representative for each of us. And if we are in Him, that means that you have died. And so what is the life that you are now going to live? The life that you are now going to live is Him. is His life. To put it very succinctly, Paul says in Philippians, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Now, the new life that we have is Him. Because we are dead now this shows then that our relationship with him cannot be a hobby it can't be something that we pick up and put down it's not a once a week thing nor a half an hour a day thing this is life this is absolutely life it it, it cannot be a hobby this should be our, our burning consciousness all the way through every day that i am in him as Paul says elsewhere, the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So the fact that his death was representative is not just a piece of, harm, sort of harmless, painless theology. We, we say that he, he didn't die as a substitute, he died as a representative, and that, that's absolutely correct. Um, <clears throat> but what does this mean? Putting meaning into those words. Well, he died for us, and it's several times in this passage here, the Greek word "hooper," H-U-P-E-R, uh, H-U-P-E-R uh, occurs. What uh, Dorothea Sola used to call the, the preposition of representation. What that means is, uh, he died for me, means in behalf of me, on my behalf, that he was representative of me. Now, the fact then that he died as my representative so that his death and resurrection becomes mine means that I must be his representative. I cannot just shrug and say, okay, yeah, sure, I sign up for that. Jesus died as my rep- representative. Isn't that great? I also now must be his representative in this world. And, of course, that's what the whole thing goes on to say. Um <clears throat> verse 18, uh, God uh, reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors, therefore, on behalf of Christ, as though God were entreating you by us, we beseech you on behalf of Christ who Christ Be ye reconciled to God. So then, in the same way as he was our representative, we now become his representative. When we reason and talk with people, be they people like the Corinthians who were baptized but were uh, weak, let's be honest about it, or be it with the unbelieving world for whom Christ in prospect died, in principle he died for them, um, we are beseeching men and women as his representatives. On behalf of Christ, in Christ's stead, the King James says that in verse, verse 20. And again, at the beginning of verse 20, we are ambassadors, therefore, on behalf of Christ. Or the AV says, for Christ. It's the same idea. We are his representatives, as though God did beseech you, as though God were entreating you by us. Now, that is the level of passion there should be in our appealing to men and women that we are doing this with the, the the passion and the entreaty and the beseeching of God himself. Now, you can understand why God feels so passionately about human salvation, because Jesus died for the sins of the world, for, as Paul puts it elsewhere, the world's redemption. The sins of the whole world were, were put on him, and you've got this again in... Um, in the first letter of John <coughs> that uh, Christ is the propitiation for our sins insomuch as he is for those of the whole world, 1 John 2 verse 2 on the cross he carried the sin of the world, John 1 29. so then it's a tragedy that his death there was for every human being because he was a representative of every man and woman and therefore potentially salvation must be possible for all those people. But why do they not hear the message? Because we do not tell them. Now, I'd like to uh, request your attention to uh, um, <clears throat> verse, uh, end of verse 18. All things that of God who reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ, by baptism into him, and has given to us the word, the, the ministry of reconciliation to wit, the AV says, that is, this is God's method of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not reckoning uh, unto them their trespasses, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So then God's plan, God's ministry of reconciliation that he worked out was that yes, his son would die as our representative um, to reconcile the whole planet unto himself and not impute their trespasses unto them and that he would commit to us the news of that reconciliation. So that aspect that to us has been committed, the word of this reconciliation, the news of this plan, this is actually part of God's method of saving the world. And that is why um, any effort that you or I make to spread the gospel, God somehow will provide what is required. If we really are motivated by this, we get it, somehow we will overcome our natural shyness, our natural awkwardness, perhaps, as personalities. Our lack of resources, maybe. Um, Our sense that I cannot speak, I am a child, as Jeremiah said. Somehow we will overcome. Somehow life works out so that we might Carry that word of reconciliation. And I'm not talking about geographically trotting all, all over the world, that God will kind of give you air tickets and stuff. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you and I, in our uh, situation wherein we live, taking that word of reconciliation to all the people around us. Because Jesus has died for Hooper as their representative of every one of those lovely people all around you. And yet, why don't they get it? Because it says here that, to wit, verse 19, A.V., uh, that is, right, this is the statement of God's ministry of reconciliation. He would be in his Son, uh, reconcile the world unto himself by the cross, would not reckon unto them there, that is, the world's trespasses, and then he would commit unto us the word of reconciliation. So admittedly he 's working through broken reeds, but this is the way, in his wisdom, he decided to do it and I think that 's why the Lord Jesus seems to say that when the gospel has gone into all the world, then shall the end come when we have uh, done it as it were, then it he will come now to what extent the, the gospel must be known in all the world it's um you know is a a more open question but um nonetheless it's, it's so so then because God does not want the death of his son to be wasted he has a passionate urgency, urgency um, what is called here an entreaty um, an appeal to men and women to, to accept that reconciliation as though and, and he's put it in our hands verse 20 as though God did beseech you by us as though God himself were entreating you by us now, he has said in verse um, 18 that God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. He has done this. And yet, he, uh, Paul says in verse 20, and so therefore be ye reconciled to God. So then he's saying, be in practice what you are in status. There is no sin that can stand between God and yourself, you are reconciled to God by status, particularly those of us who have been baptised into Christ we are in that status, um, but we've got to live that out Be ye reconciled therefore to God and So, <clears throat> reconciled what does this mean? Well, as so far as I can see the, the Greek word amazingly it seems to imply that a change is made to both parties. Re, come together, sile, sile. That God and man, in a sense, both change in order to come together. Now this is sort of homework really for you. <coughs> but I, I suggest to you that in the cross of Christ something changed Not only in us, of course, that we cannot any longer be passive, but something even changed on God's end. And I think that that's amazing, that in some sense God changed. Now, through his experience of having a son. That's normal. Now, I know you can say, ah, yeah, but I am the Lord, I change not. But go on. In that quotation from Malachi, I am Yahweh and I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. The one thing that does not change is God's essential grace, is his essential not uh, punishing people as he has said he will. So it's actually his uh, change, if you like, of his own principles and word almost, um, which is the one element that does not change. And of course God does change. He says to Moses, I will destroy this people and make of you a greater nation. And he rethinks. Same with Jonah and Nineveh. And there's a whole load of these examples. That God is more gracious uh, than the judgments that he pronounces against his people at different times. So then that's uh, for reflection maybe afterwards, that to some extent the whole uh, process of having a son who was truly of our nature and yet was perfect, as we know, uh, changed God in some way. And yet also changes us, of course. And it is there, in that mutual change, that God and man meet. Now, this is a very profound sort of uh, thought, but that is the idea of reconciliation. Now the theme of reconciliation is strong here in Corinthians, and yet very often he's talking here about being reconciled to each other. And uh, Ted Russell, who is in many ways my, uh, my, my, my teacher in Christ, uh, in, in countless articles, books, uh, Bible talks, Bible scores that he he gave in a long lifetime uh, repeatedly was on about this uh, double, uh, dual nature of reconciliation. That reconciliation with God is related to and part and parcel of our reconciliation with each other. Now, I understand that at times um, we cannot be reconciled to people who refuse to be reconciled to us. As Paul says, uh, try to live at peace with all men as uh, as far as you can um, so sometimes it just doesn't work out, it didn't work out in Paul's life but we on our end from our side should not be um, the ones who are unreconciled or unwilling to reconcile and all the attitude which there is of uh, not breaking bread with certain brethren in Christ, uh, not having meetings, not even trying to discuss, ignoring requests for dialogue and all that, this is all totally wrong. And if we are unreconciled, and it's our fault that we choose to be unreconciled to our brethren, I'm afraid, <laughs> biblically, and I, you know, God, may his grace may be big enough even for this, I'm sure it will be, um, but biblically, anyway, we are voting ourselves out of reconciliation with God, because John makes this quite clear that we cannot claim to love our brother, uh, sorry, to, to love God, and yet not have relationship with our brother. That our love for God is part and parcel of our relationship to those that are in, in His Son, and that He who loves Him that begot must also love those who are begotten of Him. It has to be like that. And so, <clears throat> one last uh, thing. Paul is writing here, actually, to baptize believers. And he says, God has committed unto us, verse 19, the word of re- reconciliation. Therefore, God is beseeching you entreating you by us. He's talking to baptize believers. We beseech you. We pray you. On behalf of Christ, be ye reconciled to God. So the whole ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation that we have received, is not simply to bring unbelievers to Christ. It is also to minister to those who have accepted him, but are not reconciled with him as they should be. Uh, the the, the uh, Ecclesias in Corinth were a classic example, I, I guess. So, there is this twofold aspect to what he calls here the ministry of reconciliation. And in fact, if you look up the word ministry, like verse 18, uh, he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, the service, that's what it means, the work of slaves. That's what it is. It's nothing dramatic, and and preaching and witnessing should never, ever be made out to be anything dramatic. It is a ministry, which is uh, the word for the work of a slave. It's slavery. Uh, it's the lowest of the low, in in one sense, uh, in terms of the, the kind of work it is. Um, but Paul uses this word ministry very often in Corinthians, and nearly always he's talking about his ministry to the saints uh, in uh, in Judea, the the poor believers, and he was trying to collect uh, material welfare to help them in their time of suffering, time of famine, etc. That was the ministry that you read of throughout Corinthians and I think he's uh, explaining a little bit his, his motivation But we have been given the ministry of reconciliation that is the word of reconciliation to, to bring men and women who are unbelievers to uh, the, the Lord Jesus and to, to accept what he has done for them and to accept uh, that forgiveness that, that he has made possible for them it is that but it, it's beyond that it also refers to our attitude to those who have been baptized, our, our caring, our service towards them. And where do we keep on getting the motivation to do this? Because in the same way as there is uh, what the world would call donor fatigue, there is sort of kindness fatigue and grace fatigue. You know, am I going to keep on with that difficult old sister? Am I going to keep on? Answering the endless uh, questions that I rather difficult brother. Uh, maybe he has mental problems, maybe he has various social problems, etc. Are we going to keep on and on and on? Bailing people out of various situations that they get themselves in, etc. Are we going to keep on witnessing to a world which generally says, Sorry, I'm not interested. Go away. I don't want to hear about your Jesus. Because, you know, that's what most people are saying. That's not, um, let's not wrap it up any other way. That's what they're saying, de facto, politely or impolitely, but that, that's what they're saying. How do we get the motivation to keep on keeping on? A simple strength of, of steel will I don't think is enough. Well, it is not enough. We don't have that steel within our own will. We really don't. But what we do have, or should have is a realisation that you and I are serious sinners, and that we have been reconciled to God, that we have been counted as righteous. As we see there in the last verse, which is the climax of the whole thing, verse 21, Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin on our behalf, for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The fact that you and I are baptized into Him, that He was our representative in our sinfulness, and yet also, because He's our representative, His righteousness, therefore is counted also to us. This is so profound and so simple that it almost slips us by. That you and I are looked at by God as if we are faultless before the presence of His glory, and it's all—it well, is—it's too good news. It's too good to believe. But because that is how it really is, and potentially that is how it can be for every single human being on this planet, because Christ died for all, for the world. We really want to be Christ to them, because the life that we now live. It's not us anymore. It's not about me. It's all about him in a mire. Absolutely. It's not about me. It's all about him. To live is Christ. And I love that uh, little song that says, Brother, sister, let me serve you. The ministry, the service of reconciliation. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be the Christ to you.